Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 42, reading through the end of the chapter. If you are following in the ESV, you will note that there will be, if you're not following in the ESV, you will note there are at least two verses, I think it is only two, that you will not see in the reading. I am reading from the ESV. If you are reading from another translation like the New King James, perhaps, or the King James, uh, there will be the additional verses in your translation. All right? Don't panic. It's not the end of the world. If you want to ask me later why that is, I'll tell you. But I am reading from the ESV, Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 42, reading through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to this portion of your word and words that are spoken by your Son, words that are penetrating, they are blunt, they are clear. They preach themselves indeed, yet we are here asking that you by the eternal Spirit now would open our eyes and ears to these things. We pray that you'd be gracious to us in this time. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. A certain man wanted to sell his house. He lived in Haiti. He wanted to sell his house for $2,000. I don't know when it was written. It is Haiti after all. Okay, so for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy it, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price with just one stipulation. He would retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the door. After several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hung it from the single nail he still owned. What a guy. Soon the house became unlivable. The family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. The moral of the parable is this. If we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotten garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. If we leave, the devil, 
the enemy of your soul, if we leave him with one, even one small peg, nail, in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. Each day, you and me are in a battle. If you're not aware of that battle, well, maybe we should talk. We are in one. As the redeemed of the Lord purchased with the blood of Christ, we are in a battle for the souls of men. Your soul, mine. We are waging war against the terrible onslaught of the enemy of our souls. You face it every day. The constant plague and reminder of the remaining sin in our lives, that sin that, if you're like me, just want to be gone, be tired of it, tired of dogging, dogging at our heels, tired of it bothering you, tired of it tormenting you. Oftentimes we have these problems because we like this this story, I don't know, true or it's probably not true. I'm sure it's all fiction, but regardless, oftentimes these battles happen to us. They happen to you because you've left a small peg in your life in which Satan can come and hang his rotten garbage on it. That is to say, you, you haven't really dealt with the sin. You haven't mortified it. That is to say, you haven't put it to death. You see, true disciples of Christ hate the sin. They hate sin. They hate specific sin. They don't like it at all. They understand that it's an affront against a holy God. They understand that it's that which has caused and plunged our entire world, indeed the universe, into this misery that we find ourselves. Our shorter catechism couldn't be more plain, couldn't be more clear when it says that sin has brought misery and death into our existence. The problem, of course, for most of us is that we just don't take it that seriously. But true disciples of Christ, they labor day after day, doing battle with sin, refuse to give Satan any peg in which to erect his evil, his evil on. That's what true Christians do. Those who really love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I trust that's you, You not only have a a new relationship, a new understanding of the God of heaven, but you also have a different, a new understanding of sin. At least you ought to. And you recognize just how awful it really is. The hypocrites in the church, those those people are much harder to detect. Hence, hypocrite. They sit in the pews week after week and allow the sermon to wash over them. They reflect little on their sin. They couldn't care less how large a peg they have in which Satan is constantly hanging his trash. In a word, they have deceived themselves. The question, of course, as we deal with this passage that Jesus has here in front of us, and it is Jesus who says that these are his words, not that they're more inspired or more infallible than the words that Paul penned in 1 Corinthians or any place else. The issue, of course, is dealing with two kinds of people. You're either one who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ and has a renewed and right understanding of the nature of sin and 
in your hatred from it is, for it is increasing day after day, and you're seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh, or you're like the hypocrite who doesn't really, doesn't really care. Because everybody sins, you know, we're just human. No, that's not the answer. As a redeemed child of God, you should mourn sin. You should, you should care that you sin at all. It should bother you. It should really bother you. Jesus himself says that those that mourn, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He wasn't talking about mourning someone who died. He's talking about sin. Do you care that you do sin? When you do, does it bother your conscience? Does it cause you to flee to Christ, which is what it should do? Does it cause you to plead the blood of Christ? Or do you just move about your day like, who cares? It doesn't matter. Whoop-dee-ding. Everybody does it. You can only answer, only you can answer that question. I confess, I have days like that. But the truth is, so do you. But it ought not be. Do you long for the day when you will no longer have this battle? Young people, you may give it very little thought. After all, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You think it's just so way out there in the future. And maybe it is for you. Maybe the Lord will bless you with 110 years. I don't know. Those of us who are older in the faith and have been walking with the Lord for a significant amount of time, the older we get, and I think there would be, should be at least a hearty amen from the elderly in this room, the older we get, the more we long, what? For glory, in the end of the battle, in the war against sin and the flesh and the world and the devil. Which one are you? Yes, I said, yeah. Which one are you this morning? You're just going through the paces, singing happily along, do as you're moving through your life, or you really understand? The nature of sin and how awful it is, and you prepared to wage war against it, to kill it. You know what Owen says? That's John Owen. Be busy killing sin, or it will kill you. He, in a sense, just summarized the theology of Paul on this subject from Romans chapter 8. You see, brothers and sisters, that's what Christians do. They know what it costs. That little sin that you describe as a little sin, put your Savior on a cross. It caused the Father in heaven to crush his Son. We should hate it. Every time. Well, this is what Jesus is dealing with in this passage. He couldn't be more plain, as I mentioned earlier. It really doesn't need to be preached much, does it? The words just kind of speak for themselves. But we're going to. We're going to deal with this and its plainness of it all. Jesus is close to the cross now. This issue is certainly part and parcel of that, that which he's thinking, knowing that as he goes to the cross, he's going to deal with this problem that has plunged the whole world and universe into misery. 
So I want to show you this morning that disciples of Jesus Christ must have a right understanding and action to temptation and sinful action, both to others and to themselves. I want to show you that as a disciple of Christ, you must have a right understanding about sin, its action, its work, its temptation, not only for yourself, but also for others. Two points as we consider these verses, verses 42 through 50 of the passage. I think it's two. It usually is. It is. Two points. First, there is a warning. It's in verse 42. Don't cause others to sin. In fact, that's the whole first point. That verse. Verse 42. The second point is warning, another warning. Don't cause yourself to sin. That's verses 43 to 50. You might think, well, great. The first point is going to be pretty short. Well, actually, it's the longest of the two. Two warnings in the passage. Don't cause others to sin. Don't cause yourself to sin. Let's first consider this first warning that Jesus gives there very plainly in the opening verse of the passage. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus is a master storyteller. The imagery is a little foreign to us, I suspect. It would be foreign to us. We, we don't really understand. But if you think about it, if you know a little bit about that, period, that area in which Jesus is ministering, laboring, a millstone, it's a rather large thing. It's not small. It's not a pebble. It's not even a rock. It's huge. It's, it's giant. And it weighs a lot. Far more than you. Me, in fact, far more than probably the aggregate weight of everybody in this room. And Jesus says, if you cause a little child, a little children, one of these little ones to stumble, to sin, it would be better for you, better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the middle of the Galilee Sea, the Sea of Galilee. Wow. I mean, hyperbole much? Not really. The people that Jesus is talking to in about here in this opening verse is given to us in that word, whoever. Who's he applying this to? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know, those hypocrites, those enemies of Christ. No, whoever. Anyone. Mark here employs what is known as a universal statement. This warning by Christ is aimed at everyone. No one is excluded. The disciples that are listening to the words of the Savior, they're included. The church is included. Elders and deacons and members and pastors included. And especially the elders and the pastors of churches, they really need to hear these words. Not that you don't, but they certainly do. Why? Because typically they're the ones who carry the message of the gospel to others in the church. They're the ones who are typically teaching and preaching. They're the ones who are influential in, in their life. They, they should be at least by example. The things that they do and they don't do. Yes, brothers, you live in a glass house. 
So do I. The disciples are the target, the church, the elders, the leaders of the church, members of the church. Everyone is in the target, in the view, in the eyes of Christ when he makes this statement, this very strong statement, one that carries eternal consequences. This is not like getting up in the middle of the night and stubbing your toe against the foot against the, 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 the foot of your bed, which I've done more than I care to talk about. It hurts. It's painful. But you know, it goes away. Not this. This carries with it eternal weight. The importance of what Christ is saying here cannot be overstated. I know I'm trying to, but it can't be. He's talking to everybody. He's talking about these people he describes here as little ones. That's how the ESV renders it. It is the outworking of the warning that Christ makes is that causing the little ones that believe in him to stumble or to sin. Now, who are the little ones? Children? Certainly. Jesus had a special affinity for children. As such is the kingdom of God. Don't hinder them, he would say. But it's not all he means here. He means perhaps those who are weak in their faith, who could be taken advantage of in some way, shape, or form. If you cause them to stumble, if you cause them to sin, if you, by your behavior and your actions, have led them down the primrose path, it would be so much better for you if you were never born. My words. What is the occasion of the statement? Why does Jesus even bring this subject up? Well, the preceding passage is the immediate context. John has just rebuked the believer for serving Christ and was subsequently rebuked for doing so. Jesus has just told his disciples not to hinder those who are serving in my name. Honestly, legitimately, don't hinder their labor. Don't hinder their work. And now he turns his sights on those who might seek to hinder the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit of God in the hearts and minds of, as he describes them, the little ones of the church, the immature in the faith, the, the vulnerable, the weak. The immediate context is that here, Jesus, he warns that you should not be the source of temptation for others. And putting it in a nutshell, summarizing the verse, that's essentially what he is saying. Don't you, Christian, don't you, elder, don't you, pastor, don't you, whoever you may be, friend, not friend, be a source of temptation for other people. I remember once I was talking to a man in the church. He was a Christian, professing Christian. And I actually had to tell him, I said, stop being a pawn of the evil one. Because he was using his influence. He was using to distract and to turn away others. Jesus says, this has not happened. This is dangerous. Don't do this. How can that happen? Well, I've bracketed this section of the outline into two parts. 
First negatively, which is really the point of what Jesus is talking about here. And I'm sorry if I step on some of your toes, but I probably will. But you've been here three years or more, and you know that I'm not lacking in boldness at times, and so I'm not going to today. How is it we can do this negatively? Lead someone astray and subject ourselves to the dire warning that Jesus Christ puts here. How can you cause others to sin by being the source of their temptation? No, you can't make anybody sin, but you can certainly encourage it by inhibiting or injuring or destroying the faith of a simple and ordinary disciples. How can we apply this? Well, let's just start real simple, which isn't to say it's simple at all. Fathers, the Lord has entrusted you because you're a father. That means by definition you must have children unless something tragic happened at some point. The Lord has entrusted you with little ones. Really and truly, are you leading them in the things of the Lord? Are you guiding them in that which the Lord has commanded? Are you faithful to the vow you took when you had them baptized that you would raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Are you diligent to do that, not just in family worship on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, whatever it is, but all the time? Now, the Deuteronomy 6 principle of whether you rise or go lie down, whether you walk in the way, whether, whatever, whatever it is you're doing, are you doing that? It's a high calling, isn't it? Hey, look, I was a father. I failed abysmally in many ways. If you fail to lead your family in the things of the Lord, you may come under the very judgment that Jesus is mentioning here having more excuses than reasons for not conducting family worship, praying with your family, discussing spiritual things, protecting and guiding them in all things, in all ways. These are the Lord's children. You've heard that before. They're on loan to you kind of thing. Dads, are you doing it? Look, I think we can all improve in this area. I certainly can. You can. We all can. But the question is, will we? How about our marriages? I can't tell you how many times I've seen one spouse or the other destroyed because of poor guidance in the home. A husband not leading his wife faithfully and properly. A wife not doing what she ought to be doing according to the word of God, and never mind all this bunk that's out there in our culture. How about elders in the church? Oh, I'm going to skip that one. Let's just skip over that one. Let's just go to the next one. No, no. I've read this passage to my elders here in this church. We've talked about these things, just so you know. That passage in Ezekiel 34 is, is frightening. I'm not going to read it. You can read it later. But just needless to say, it, it, it's, it's awful. It's the indictment of Jehovah against the unfaithful shepherds of Israel and all the rotten things that are going to, all the things that they're doing. It, it's rotten. It's terrible. They might as well have a millstone cast around their neck and thrown into the deepest sea. That would be better for them than what they were doing. 
It's indeed a high calling, isn't it? Yes, your elders are going to make mistakes. Yes, your elders are going to sin. Guess what? They're just like you. But they still have a responsibility to not mislead God's people. To be faithful shepherds of the people. Church members, no, you don't get off the hook either. You can be a source of temptation and mislead others in the church by engaging in simple behavior and then including others in it with you. I've seen this before. Let me list some of them. Grumbling and complaining. It's, grumbling and complaining by yourself is no fun, in case you haven't noticed. You ever done that? Try it. Try go, go home, stand in a room somewhere all by yourself and grumble. It's not a lot of fun. Nobody's listening. And frankly, nobody should be anyway. Gossiping. Again, it takes two. You are helping another person down the wrong road. Bad attitudes, failing to give to the work of the church, matters of liberty and dealing with weaker brother. I could go on and on. I'm not going to. They're bad enough. The point I'm making is this, that in every sphere of the church, in every sphere of our existence as Christians, this warning comes to us. It doesn't matter whether you're an elder, church member, whether you're a parent, whether you're a husband, a wife, it doesn't matter. This warning comes to all of us. We need to be very careful in the way we live our lives. That we don't cause somebody in the church, the little ones, to sin. Well, what's the opposite of these things? Well, I have two. There probably could be 32. But you don't want to be here all day, and neither do I. Don't say it. I know what you're thinking. Instead of grumbling and complaining, instead of, why don't you encourage one another? Every one of you in this church are at different roads in your spiritual life, different points. Some of you are much further down the road spiritually. I look up to you. You're far more spiritually, far more spiritually mature than I am. And some of you aren't. Encourage each other in the things of the Lord to walk in holiness and godliness, in service to the church. And on it goes. Don't be a hindrance because the warning is serious. Jesus says, Death is to be preferred over sinning in this way. Death is to be preferred over sinning like this. The matter addressed by the Savior is very much a life and death issue. And judgment will come because a holy God is watching. He sees. And he will defend his people. Well, there's another warning in the passage. I know you're thinking, that was supposed to be the long point. Well, it was. So be encouraged. Maybe I'll be done by noon. But I wouldn't hold your breath. There's another warning in the passage. The one that we probably live in most of the time. Don't cause others to sin. Okay, we got that. 
We recognize and we are aware of the fact that that is a, a reality, that we can't do that. But what about your own sin? The way you live and are you dealing with it? Don't cause yourself to sin. Remember what Flip Wilson used to say, for those of you who are, I'm dating myself now, and actually I'm not because he was before me, but it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. No, wrong, sorry. That should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. I know it just came out of my mouth, but I was using it for an illustration. No, the devil didn't make you do it. You made you do it. Take responsibility for your own sin. Don't blame others. Jesus deals with this, too. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and he goes on and all these maiming of body parts, which is figurative, by the way, so don't panic. But notice that little word there. If. It's present in our lives, the temptation of sin is the reality of the way in which we exist, the world in which we operate. Temptation is all around us. You prayed earlier this morning, yes, it's still morning, you prayed earlier this morning, lead me not into temptation. Why did you say that? Do you even know that you said that? Do you remember saying it? Because the reality of temptation is present a lot, always. No one is excluded. Every Christian who knows anything about the Christian life knows about the issue of temptation. Think about David, a man after God's own heart. He was tempted. Peter, my favorite disciple, Peter, he was tempted. It'll never happen. You are the Christ, but it'll never happen. You're not going to the cross. And Hey, look, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you, but he was tempted. He was even tempted and then fell miserably when he denied even knowing Christ. This is an apostle. How about this one? How about the Savior? He was tempted too. So before you're quick to say that I'm never tempted to do X, Y, Z, uh, Jesus was tempted. Why do you think you're immune? He was tempted by Satan directly. You probably have never been tempted by Satan directly, though I can't say that definitively. It's probably not likely. And you, too, are tempted. Why? Why are you tempted? Well, you have a fallen nature. You still have sin and dwelling sin remaining in you, but here's the real reason. The, the, well, the, another reason. Satan hates you. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. 
Satan hates every Christian, everyone who has the name of Christ stamped on their forehead, everyone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Satan hates. I had a professor that said one time in class that it stupefied me, frankly, um, that Satan would kill you where you stand if God allowed it. That's how much he hates you. Took me about 10 minutes to recover from that comment. Never thought of it that way before. He's right. Every one of us are prone to temptation. Every one of us are prone to sin. Every one of us, because of the fallen nature that we possess, are prone to these things. But Jesus gives us an antidote. He tells us what to do. He tells us about the reality of sin. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't pretend like it's just some mistake. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't matter. He says and he explains just how serious an issue this is by using very radical language, strong language, metaphorically employed, illustrative, figurative, to drive home the point and the serious nature of it. He connects it to real life. Because everyone in this room this morning knows what a hand is. And if you don't, this is a hand. Okay? Hand. There's only probably one person in this room that doesn't know what a hand is, but I guarantee it's in their mouth or his or her, whatever, in all the time. She knows where it is. We all know what a hand is. A, a foot. We know what that is, too. Right? And I'm not going to stick my foot out here and act like a fool. Look down at your foot. Jesus connects all of these things, these real issues, to real things that we readily understand, readily identify. He strikes us right where we live. They are part of our everyday experience. But we must not miss the driving point. When he says to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, cut off your, pluck out your eye, tear off your ear. He didn't say that one, but what is the problem? Why is it you're tempted? Why am I tempted because my heart is still got blackness in it. That's the reason. The source of every temptation that comes to us, according to James, according to Matthew 15, all of it, it comes from the, the, the pollution of the human heart. And Jesus is not dismissing any of that when he makes reference to these things. We are tempted to do all sorts of evil in the world. We are tempted to do things that we ought not do. We are tempted to disobey our parents. We are tempted to, to, to uh, break the speed limit. Okay, that's one of my favorite ones. We are, temp- we are tempted in many ways in this life, and the reason we are is because our heart has not been completely cleansed. And so Jesus gives to us radical a radical remedy for temptation and sin. It's really a radical procedure, isn't it? Think about, let's just listen to the words. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. What? Yeah. If you can't stop stealing the candy bar from Walmart, it'd be better to cut your hand off than to keep going on sinning. Might have to cut off the other one too, but either way, cut it off. Is that better for you to enter life crippled? And with two hands to go to hell 
You know how many times he mentions hell in this passage? You don't think it's serious? Jesus talks more about hell in the, in the Gospels than he does, does talk about heaven. Here he mentions it three or four times. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Jesus is suggesting, he's not suggesting, he's telling his followers that the way to deal with these things is radical. That we must mortify the deeds of the flesh. That we must crush these things underfoot ourselves. They will, like I've already said, they will indeed kill you. This is what Christians do. This is what followers of Christ do. They hate sin so much, they're willing to lose their arm for it, or their foot, or their eye, or their ear, or whatever. Not literally. Jesus is not advocating masochism here, self-harm. He is trying to make the point that it is so serious that if you don't deal with it, it will kill you. And Christians deal with it. Christians radically deal with sin. Put a different way, a professing Christian who refuses to mortify sin in his life sins and refuses to deal with it. It's hard to say that they're actually a professor, they're actually a Christian. It's hard to know, isn't it? They just sin. Don't care. Who I hurt, who I ruined, who I wrecked. Doesn't matter after all. What difference does it make? Because I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and I'm good. I got fire insurance, which is to say that's all you've got and you don't. Christians mortify sin. And a professing Christian who refuses to mortify sin will become an evil influence on other people. I've seen it so many times. Bad company corrupts good morals. Poor judgment, poor decisions, evil thoughts, evil actions will only breed more of it. And so we must, as Christians who love Christ and understand that that sin, that sin that we're in love with, put Christ on the cross, it should break your heart, it should hurt you, it should cause you to say, you know what, I would prefer to chop off my arm that offend the Savior who died for that sin that I refuse to deal with. We must mortify it. Notice I'm saying we throughout this entire sermon, almost the entire time I've said we. I don't usually preach that way. I have to mortify sin, too. Look, there's no, no special vacuum around my study downstairs that keeps sin out. I have to mortify it. You have to mortify it. Jesus says to mortify it. He uses very vivid language when he says it. What is it? What is it to mortify sin? Well, let me tell you what it isn't first. It isn't a complete rooting out of the sin. That is the aim, but that will never happen in this life. This is Owen. Great book, by the way, Mortification of Sin. You should read it. 
It's in the library, too. You will never completely root out all sin in your life. Not in this life. But as it shows itself, you seek to kill it. As a nasty enemy trying to invade your home. And it's not also just the change of some outward behavior. Well, I'm going to improve my behavior. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to do this instead. That's not what it is. True mortification of sin is a dealing with the heart and the source of the sin. You know, you've heard the expression, you cut off the, you, you want a snake to die, you have to cut off its head. You can cut off the tail of the snake and it's going to keep living, I suspect. So I've been told. I don't like snakes. You want to kill the sin, you've got to cut, off, cut it off at the source. It's a heart problem. It requires surgery. A surgery of the sharp-edged sword of the Word of God. What is it then? Well, Owen, again, it's a habitual weakening of sin, watching and being aware lest you fall into temptation. very words that Jesus gave to his disciples on the night in which he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they couldn't even stay awake. And what did he say to them? Watch and pray. Why? In case you enter into temptation. Most of the time we enter into temptation because we're not paying attention. The evil one comes along, and I'm telling you, he doesn't come along. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't come along with a big sign over his head and said, I'm evil, I'm bad, I'm poisonous, I'm, I'm, I, I, you're going to have a disease if you come anywhere near me. He, it's, it's always interesting, alluring, wonderful. It holds out promises it can't deliver. And what do we do? Oh, we run right in there. And then before long, whack, trapped, like the mouse in the mousetrap. So we must deal with our hearts. We must watch and pray. Help me not to enter into temptation. Keep me vigilant, Father. There's there's someone out there prowling around looking to devour me. Help me to cut off my arm, my leg, my eye, if necessary. It's a constant fight and a contention against sin. Again, Owen, a degree of success in the battle will come to those who seek to mortify sin by the help of the Spirit of God. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't think, well, I don't have this problem. Well, be careful. Jesus applies this to everybody. It requires radical surgery rooted in the heart and then demonstrated in an unwillingness to engage in those things that cause us to sin. Let me give you some examples. Men,
Maybe you struggle with lust. watching that TV program all the time. I'm not against TV. You know that. I don't make rules for you in this area, but I can't say you need to guard your eyes. You need to think pure thoughts. I can't say that. Paul said that. And you're watching that TV program, and your heart is turned, and your thoughts are evil. Only you know and God. And you can't get a control of it. Well, gouge out your eyes. A whole lot better than going to hell. No, you can't do that, of course. So why don't you throw that TV right out the front window? Eradicate the source, at least outwardly. Ladies, you knew I was going to pick on you too. I'm not picking on you. Sometimes I think ladies find their contentment in the most recent diet, fad, eating incorrectly, shopping excursions, who knows, relationships with others instead of Christ. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not a lady. Uh, I have a harder time thinking about these things than I do the men. Maybe you have emotional affairs. Well, then cut it off. Deal with your heart, but get rid of the source, the outward source. This is what Owen would suggest. It's all here because of the serious nature of it. The nature of the fact that if we don't deal with sin, it will kill us. Now you might be here and you might be thinking, wait a minute, I think it's theology is a mess. Okay, maybe it is. I'm a Christian. I can't go to hell. That's true. But if you're a Christian, you're going to kill sin. You're going to kill it. You're going to mortify it. You're going to do, deal, you're going to do business with it. You're going to deal with it. You're not going to ignore it. You're not going to pretend like it doesn't matter. Because you understand the great cost of it, don't you? You know and understand that my sin, whatever it may be, the stubbed toe and the bad word that came out of your mouth that you shouldn't have said, the taking the Lord's name in vain, that one time, it's the only thing I've ever done, Pastor, once, put Jesus on the cross. No hope without him. You know that, and it grieves you. And so you... Do what the Savior says. You labor to be killing sin because you understand how offensive it is to him and to God himself. But maybe you're the other person. You read these words and you're like, ah, whatever. Jesus wasn't much of a realist. I mean, we live in a mess world. I mean, we're not perfect after all. We're only human. And so you're sailing along happily every single day. No regard for sin. Doesn't seem to bother you. Doesn't seem to bother you how it affects other people. Doesn't seem to bother you how it affects you. Doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, if that's your case, you're not a Christian. Or you're very sick and you need to be wakened up. Awakened. Wakened up? Awakened. Two kinds of people in the passage. 
The true disciple of Christ and the hypocrite who looks, at, looks the part, has the right words, but couldn't care less. Which one are you this morning? It was the Puritans who so wisely advised Christians to keep short accounts with sin. Why? Because if you don't, it'll be like a cancer, and it will grow and grow. Before long, it's out of control. Which one are you? You name the name of Christ this morning, and I, pr and I pray that you do then you have a different understanding of sin than the rest of the world. You know how awful it is. A hypocrite rarely, if ever, thinks of their own sin. They simply go through life attending church because that's what we do on Sunday without giving a thought about their impending doom. They refuse to do anything about their sin, even when called upon to do something about it. When called upon to repent, they're not going to repent. They refuse to repent. They won't do anything about it. They fail to heed the warning that today their soul may be required of them, that today may be the day when they will face a holy and just God who cannot and will not be fooled by their cultural Christianity. But you, my friend, if that's you this morning, you are offered the same hope that many of you in this room, many people sitting around you in this room, hold on to. It's not terminal, you know. For the one who offers these words, these striking words in this passage, is about to go to a cross and die for the sins of sinners, for hypocrites even. That's where you go. You say, you know what? He's right. I've been playing a part. I've been walking the I've walked the aisle, and now I'm just coasting along through the Christian life, but I really don't care about how offensive I am to my God, who I say I love, and you know he's right, that's me. And I need to repent. I need to get on my face before the day ends, and I need to ask the God of heaven to forgive me for my poor understanding of sin and how much of an offense it is. You know, here's the thing. God isn't going to pull out a Yankee baseball bat and hit you over the head with it. He's going to love you. He's going to embrace you. He's going to welcome you. He's going to pour out his blessings upon you. He's going to forgive you for it. Maybe you're a Christian today. You're here. You, you know Christ. You, you really you hate sin. You, 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 you understand. But there are some sins in your life that you're not going to get rid of. When I get to this point in my life, I'm going to do this, and, and I'm, I don't care what anybody thinks. Well, the same solution is the same. It's the same for you. You look to Christ. You say, look, this is a mess. I, I can't think like this. I'm a Christian. God help me. Be merciful to me. Show forth your grace to me. I am sorry. I repent. I am a miserable creature of dust. But you're a great Savior. That's what you do. Again, no bat. No finger. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christians, you hate it. You hate the war. You hate the battle. You hate the indwelling sin. 
You hate the failures. You hate the disappointments that you give to your father from time to time. All of it, you can't stand it. And you look for the day, you long for the day. When the Savior returns, and it's all done. May he hasten the day when this kind of sermon will never have to be preached again. Because sin will be no more in the hearts and minds of his people. Kill it. Be busy about it. Do it daily. Do it to the glory of the God who purchased you and rescued you from a life of sin and misery. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and as penetrating and as pointed as it is so often, we confess to you that we don't take this as seriously, anywhere near as serious as the Savior did. It was serious to him because it cost him his own life. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have peace with you. Father, help us by your Spirit. May we be what you said we are. May you cause us to repent of those times in which we've been so carefree and casual with that which crushed your Son under your hand. Be merciful to us and help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.